The Book Club is brought to you in association with Charles Stanley Community, providing our clients, colleagues and friends with practical support and conversation. Find out more at Charles Stanley Community. Hello and welcome to the Spectator Books Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and I'm joined this week by the great Shakespearean professor James Shapiro, author of 1599, A Year in the Life of William Shakespeare, and 1606, uh, William Shakespeare and the Year of King Lear. James was going to be in London to do a book tour for his new book, Shakespeare in a Divided America. Unfortunately, he wasn't able to cross the Atlantic for reasons that we'll all know, and we're very lucky to have him joining us down the line from his home. Now, James, welcome. Your new book is called Shakespeare in a Divided America. And you've turned your attention from specific, you know, micro histories of years in the life of Shakespeare in his own world to look a bit more at the cultural reach of Shakespeare on the other side of the Atlantic. Now, the first thing to ask, I guess, because Shakespeare, you know, as your book shows, is woven through these important moments in American history. It seems very odd on the face of it, as you acknowledge in your introduction, that this British-English playwright has become the sort of so important and woven so deeply into America's myths because, you know, you're a Puritan country in the first place where theatres were not a big thing, were kind of frowned on and where rejecting everything to do with the English was a kind of part of the country's foundation myth. How does that come about? If you think about it, we went to war with you in 1776 and achieved independence. And there was every likelihood that we would achieve literary independence as well. But having fought another war with you about three or four decades later, you would think that lesson would have been learned. It's a mystery to me why Shakespeare has been embraced by Americans as deeply as he has been from the early 19th century on. And it, and it is a mystery. There are some possible explanations, the these and thous of the King James Bible written at the same time as Shakespeare's late plays resonated, at least in terms of their sound and sense with Shakespeare's plays. We didn't have alternatives in the early 19th century in terms of great dramatists or great writers yet in, in America. By the mid-19th century, that was certainly the case, but not until then. And simply because the issues that Shakespeare's plays circle around and, and really dig into pretty deeply the nature of tyrannical rule, the slippery bounds of gender and the relationship between men and women, political, social, economic issues. These are what America was struggling with in the early 19th century and still struggling with today. Shakespeare's plays became a means of negotiating these differences, wrestling with ideas that are really hard to articulate and sometimes uncomfortable speaking about. Yeah. Now, you begin, actually, kind of in Medias Res, or at least you start by talking about one of the most recent sort of Shakespearean controversies that was huge, which was Oscar Eustace's production in New York of Julius Caesar. And can you talk a bit about, I mean, was that what sort of kicked you off? What was it about that play that made it such a turning point about, in the culture wars? Well, in addition to teaching at Columbia, I work with theatre companies. I'm on the board of the Royal Shakespeare Company and get to meet with their companies fairly regularly, but much more intensively here in New York, 
I'm the Shakespeare Scholar in Residence at the Public Theater. And for your listeners who are not familiar with the Public Theater, Joe Papp founded this over a half century ago. And one of the things he did was to create free Shakespeare in Central Park, where since the early 1960s, 50,000 or so New Yorkers have entered into the Delacorte Theater, an outdoor theater that holds about 2,000 spectators, to watch a couple of Shakespeare productions. Right after Donald Trump was elected president back in 2016, Oscar Eustace, who's the artistic director of the public theater, said, I'm going to do Julius Caesar. And we had some conversations. He knew exactly what he wanted to do. He's an extraordinary director. This was his fourth time in his career doing Julius Caesar, so he didn't really need much help from me. But I had a ringside seat through the creative period, the casting period, the rehearsal period in which I get to work a bit with the actors. And then, unlike my fellow New Yorkers who have to line up often at dawn to see this production, I had a pass that let me in to see it every night. And what was distinctive about this production was Julius Caesar was a Donald Trump lookalike. Red tie, blonde wig, physically the same, gestures the same. Calpurnia was a lookalike for Donald Trump's wife. And it was a modern dress production so that audiences got to see Donald Trump's lookalike assassinated on stage midway through this play. And Eustace did something quite brilliant. He hid or seated the audience with 50 young actors who at the moment that Caesar was assassinated, started standing up and jeering at Brutus and Cassius and the other conspirators, challenging them for what they had done. And what Eustace was trying to do was create a sense of whiplash in a largely liberal New York audience that had not voted for Donald Trump. We all wanted to see him removed. And here we were witnessing an undemocratic way of removing somebody to save democracy. And what Oscar Eustace was trying to do is create a dialogue in this country and in his audience as well about this tension between our desires and the reality that this play shows. What he didn't expect was that right-wing agitators would soon be offering $1,000 to any protester who would disrupt or stop this production. The Theater became a scary place as protesters were rushing the stage, death threats against Eustace, his family, and the actors, and it became a snapshot of where America is today. And what are the points you make in in your introductions? You talk about, you know, Eustace's production is kind of honouring Shakespeare's idea of being on both sides of it, you know, arguing, I think, the ut ultram quae partem, and that was how Shakespeare thought. But... You're suggesting that kind of in, in the American culture wars, that habit of mind has shifted. When Shakespeare went to grammar school in Stratford-upon-Avon, when anybody in Elizabethan England went to school, they learned to argue both sides of a question. And if you look at plays like Julius Caesar or many Shakespeare plays, the reason why they've been appropriated by the left and the right is because each one thinks it's speaking to them directly, that these plays are often set as Julius Caesar is on a razor's edge. And that quality is one of the really distinctive qualities of Shakespeare's plays and those of his contemporaries. And I suppose that I was expecting in response to Oscar Eustace's production, reviews by right-wing newspapers and magazines, 
challenging the left, challenging Cassius, challenging the notion that you can save democracy violently. But that didn't happen. What really happened is the right played to win and was willing to resort to violence, and the left still thought there was a possibility of genuine conversation. And for me, that was a chilling moment, and a moment that is still playing out in this moment of great anxiety and coronavirus and international loss and death on a scale unimaginable, and in the United States creating deeper and deeper rifts. Now, it's to jump a little ahead in your book, but that moment, that idea of Julius Caesar crystallizing a kind of moment in the American culture wars, you know, a couple of chapters on Julius Caesar's played another sort of vital role in the real assassination of a real American president in the story of Lincoln. Can you talk a bit about how how Lincoln and John Wilkes Booth, you know, how their story is tangled up in Shakespeare? This is one of, for me, the most rewarding chapters to have researched and investigated. And I should say, having spent a quarter century trying to discover every little bit I could about Shakespeare in 1599 and Shakespeare in 1606, each bit you discover is hard earned. Yet when you turn to John Wilkes Booth or Abraham Lincoln, there are actually books available that detail every single day in their lives that are known to us. So I was able to track two men who were obsessed with Shakespeare in different ways. John Wilkes Booth, son of one of the great English Shakespearean actors who had moved to America. Two of his brothers were leading stars of the stage as well. And John Wilkes Booth was a white nationalist who believed that America, as he put it, was created for the white man and not the black man. And he came to see himself as an American Brutus dedicated to assassinating a man he thought was a tyrant, Abraham Lincoln. Lincoln had almost no formal education but his stepmother had brought into the log cabin home in which he was raised a book that had 32 excerpts from Shakespeare. And Lincoln memorized many of those and would recite them to anyone who would listen for the rest of his life. And in the last two years of his life in the White House, would go to see any Shakespeare play that he could in one of the three Washington theaters near the White House. And it was a fatal and a fateful collision in, in many ways driven by Shakespeare. Each one had a radically different sense of what Shakespeare meant. They read Shakespeare differently. One read him and the other staged him. And they collided at Ford's Theater in April 1865 when John Wilkes Booth shot Lincoln, leaped onto the stage, shouted, sick, semper tyrannis, thus always with tyrants, darted out the back of the stage door. So again and again, as I try to argue it in, in my book, Shakespeare figures at crucial moments in American history in ways that he doesn't, certainly doesn't in, in, in Britain or elsewhere in the world. One of the aspects of Lincoln's engagement with Shakespeare that, that seemed to me very interesting and riddling is that, as you say, you, you'd think for such a great orator as he was, he would draw on the resources available to him in his great li you know, mental library of Shakespeare quotations. But you say he almost never quotes Shakespeare in his own oratory. There's what you call a firewall between his public speech and his deep interest in Shakespeare. Why is that, do you think? It's extraordinary to me. 
when I finished this book and when I finished reflecting on over two centuries of American history, the first conclusion that I drew was that Abraham Lincoln was the greatest reader of Shakespeare in the history of America and read him deeply, read him sensitively. He was a melancholy, depressive man. He was drawn to the darker aspects of Shakespearean characters. He loved Claudius's speech about fratricide. That was fascinating. You, you, you say he rated it higher and argued fiercely that, that it was greater than Hamlet's you know, centerpiece soliloquy to be or not to be. The book that his stepmother had brought home had these speeches on facing pages. And you could just imagine Lincoln going back and forth between Claudius and Hamlet and saying, everybody else is wrong. And he would argue that to anyone who would listen and to everyone in his orbit. And I would say he was a bit of a nag about it, but Shakespeare mattered to him, mattered deeply. And he would read, and these are conversations that are described and recorded, he would read Macbeth tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow over and over again and would say it came as a deep comfort to him. So it spoke to something really deep within him at a time where 700,000 Americans would die on both sides, north and south, and Shakespeare became a way for him to articulate his tremendous sense of, of loss and anxiety. And that was, to me, quite remarkable and, and thrilling to read and also quite sad. You talk also about Shakespeare as being kind of the canary in the coal mine. What do you mean by that? What I mean is that there are stalker forces circulating beneath American culture and they are hard to identify. They certainly are not often described adequately by pundits or historians. And Shakespeare allows us to tap into those. If you think about it, Shakespeare's plays are a nightmare for most Americans. A story about a Jew taking a pound of flesh from a Christian, of a white woman marrying a black man, of kings assassinated. These are the things that keep Americans up at night, and yet they flock to the theater to see Shakespeare's plays enact these. And we are both, I suppose, drawn to and terrified by these plays. And they act as a canary in the coal mine because the problems of race, the problems of empire are baked into America over the past two centuries. And we're not really good at talking about these issues across a cultural divide. So Shakespeare, who is prized by both the left and the right, becomes one of the very few sites where we can still meet. And sometimes, though not in Central Park in 2017, discuss and negotiate our differences. What are the ways in which, I mean, you mentioned race as a kind of one of the issues that goes through Shakespeare as, a, you know, becomes a way of talking about race in America. I mean, what seemed to me one of the most kind of finely poised and paradoxical things in your book is that is John Quincy Adams and his attitude to Othello. Because we have him as this sort of very sort of egalitarian figure in some ways, a sort of pros, sort of anti-slavery, he's resisting himself, and yet he absolutely fiercely thinks Desdemona gets her just desserts in Othello. Do you, do you think that's a sort of 
it becomes a way of him articulating something that bubbles up in him? Well, the first thing I would say is that America's Othello is not Britain's Othello. In the 1820s, Ira Aldridge, a great African-American actor, was playing Othello on the British stage in London and elsewhere. And over a century would pass before Paul Robeson in the 1940s first played Othello as a black man on Broadway. So race is one of the primal sins of America. And Othello is a play that allows us to speak what we think but don't really want to say. And the story of John Quincy Adams is, is a story about a man who I admire greatly, sixth president of the United States, one of the fiercest opponents of slavery in the land, and yet a man who thought, as you said, that Desdemona for marrying a black man who strangles and smothers her gets what she deserves. And this is one of the great liberal figures of the early 19th century and one of the most educated men in the world. And we know about this not because he ever wrote about it. He was simply never going to write, even in his private diaries, that he hated miscegenation or, as they called it at the time, amalgamation. But after what might be the worst dinner party in recorded history, <laughs> an American president was seated next to Fanny Kemble, the leading Shakespeare star of the day. And she was in her 20s. He was in her 60s. And this took place in Boston. And he spent the dinner mansplaining to her Shakespeare, to the greatest Shakespeare actor in the day. And she sat there drinking water. And as she said, almost drinking the glass she was drinking the water from. And both of them went home and wrote in their diaries. He wrote She's not as good looking or as intelligent as people say. And she went home and described that conversation and printed it in a book about her American travels. And he was so outraged at this that he wrote two essays in which he finally admitted what he really thought about miscegenation. And she, for her part, married an American, married the wrong guy. He soon enough became, although he was from Philadelphia in the North, he inherited the second largest slave plantation in Georgia. And she, an English abolitionist, soon became a slave mistress in America. And she wrote to a friend while on a plantation in Georgia, did I ever tell you about the time when John Quincy Adams was seated next to me and said, Desdemona from marrying, and here she uses and spells out the N-word, got what she deserved. And I was just gobsmacked by this. Did Bostonians who were presidents use the N-word in the 1830s? And apparently they did. So for me, this is a story about how deep prejudice runs in America, how Othello allows us to identify these prejudices, and that there are things that we learn through Shakespeare that we don't learn through our history books in school. There's a, it's a sort of parenthesis to the story of Othello, but there's an amazing detail that we very nearly had on the stage at one point, that grizzled warhorse Ulysses S. Grant, playing not the Moor, but Desdemona. You can't make a lot of this stuff up. And I have to say, one of the great pleasures of this book is so much of this material was really sitting in archives and under-researched or unknown. In 1846, half the United States Army was sent 
to the Mexican border to provoke a war with Mexico. And while the troops were waiting for orders to cross the Rio Grande, they fought, they got drunk, and the officers there, all West Point graduates, decided, let's build a theater and then stage plays to focus the men's mind. Soldiers would fall into line and see these plays, which was better than drinking and gambling and, and the like. And they looked around and they cast a young officer as the Moor of Venice. His name was Porter. He would die within a month, but nobody knew that at the time. And then they looked for a Desdemona. And the first actor they or officer they found for the part was about six foot one, a burly football player. And he was just wrong for the part. And they cast around and they found one who was 5'7", 135 pounds, who had a girlish quality to him. And as his fellow officers remembered after the Civil War, he looked great in a dress. And that was Ulysses S. Grant, then just as second lieutenant. And Grant really rehearsed the part of Desdemona and wanted to play it. But at the end, Porter just couldn't get up enough enthusiasm for him. And they brought in a, a professional actress from New Orleans. But for that one moment, a United States president saw the world through the eyes of a white woman in love with a black man and while wearing a dress. And that is a signal moment in American history that tells me a lot about my country and tells me how far we have fallen. You talk, I mean, the, you mentioned the Mexican War, and at, around that same time, they're looking at pushing up into Oregon, and, you know, the sort of legacy of the, of the fight against the Brits and, you know, expanding the states is still, is still going on. You have this chapter in which you talk about the way in which attitudes to Shakespeare kind of help to crystallize this American idea of manifest destiny. Can you expand on that a little? Sure. Manifest destiny was a term invented by uh, an Irish-American journalist in 1845. And behind it was a hyper-aggressive masculinity. And on the political level, it was about saying America should no longer be a quiet, reserved, if you will, English republic, but it should be a brash American empire. And if that meant chasing the Brits out of the Pacific Northwest and sending an army through Mexico down into Central America, so be it. This was our God-given right. And Andrew Jackson, whose portrait hangs in the White House today and is celebrated by Donald Trump as his great forebear, exemplified this brash manliness. It's really hard to get a sense of what that meant to the country and one of the examples that I, I draw upon is the inability of any male actor at this time to play Romeo successfully. That is to say, Romeo is a character who is called and play effeminate at one point, and at another point has to pick up a sword and fight and kill Tybalt. Those two sides could not be captured by one actor in this age of increasing aggressive manliness. And the only actor who pulled it off was a woman actor, and soon many women actors. Charlotte Cushman was the great star of the mid-19th century American stage. She made her debut as Romeo, major debut, I should say, in London, where she was hailed, but also created anxiety about a woman playing a male's role so persuasively that you forgot that she was a woman. 
And this is long before the 1980s and 90s and the last decade or so, where women are regularly playing Shakespearean male leads. Charlotte Cushman was doing this in the 1840s and 1850s. And only she, in a way, could capture, she was lesbian, she was quite tough, and she could capture both sides of Romeo. And it was only after the Civil War, which put paid to the idea of this kind of aggressive manliness after they buried 700,000 Americans, that men were able once again to play Romeo in the United States. And that's one of the ways in which I try to link up Shakespeare to the political shifts and, and social shifts and cultural shifts in America that are otherwise very hard to identify. Well, one of the most explosive moments of that political and social shift also kind of pivots on this idea maybe of two different types of masculinity. And it's, the, it's a sort of, you know, what we'd now call a beef between two great Shakespearean actors, Edwin Forrest and William McCready, which ends up with light artillery deployed on the streets of downtown Manhattan. What began as a, how should I put it, a feud in a theatre in Edinburgh where McCready was playing Hamlet and came to the line, I must be idle, and pranced around the stage a bit, dangling a kerchief over his shoulder. And Forrest, who, as an American, and a kind of aggressive, hyper-aggressive American who had gone out of his way to watch that production, hissed so loudly from the balcony that McCready had to stop his performance and sit on a chair on stage. And what ensued was an ongoing feud that led ultimately to bloodshed in Lower Manhattan. The rich people in New York had decided to build a theater that kept out the lower classes, and it was called the Astor Place Opera House, located at Stone's Throw from where the public theater is now in downtown Manhattan. And for some reason, um, being facetious, the people who were kept out of the theater weren't particularly happy about it. And when McGreedy came to play Macbeth at the Astor Place Opera House, 10 to 24,000 protesters gathered outside the theater and began throwing cobblestones and threatening to torch the theater. The militia was called out. 20 people, many of them innocent bystanders, were shot dead, 100 or so wounded, and New York was on the verge of class warfare. So here you have something that had been building, this, this notion that America is a world of income inequality and social classes that was not fully accepted until this moment. And this production catalyzed for New Yorkers and for Americans that we weren't indeed a, a class-ridden society and that this encounter between these two Shakespeareans in a way encapsulated that and set off this violence. And it didn't help, I guess, that McCready was a Brit. And so they could sort of push that idea of the elitism and of the class-ridden nature of American society onto the old enemy. And the sad thing was McCready wanted to settle in America, and he just escaped the mob the next day and caught a ship back to England. He was a Republican, but it didn't make a difference because of the way he sounded. If someone sounds like you sound, they sound foreign to us here in America. And if somebody sounds like I sound, it sounds like they're from Brooklyn and they're okay. So this was... <laughs> nationalism melded with class warfare threaded through Shakespeare. 
There's also, I mean, that touches on something about the idea of theatre itself as a space, doesn't it? I mean, it's, it's, you know, as you say, there's this ongoing question about how much the theatre is a place in which different classes mingle. The 19th century had a very different attitude than we do now about what is permitted in a theatre. In theatres on both sides of the Atlantic, there were sustained applauses and hisses. People would throw pennies or rotten fruit on stage if they didn't like what they would see. By the time McCready had finished his American tour, I think he was in Cincinnati, when somebody threw half a sheep's carcass on stage, narrowly missing him. And at the Astor Place Theatre, protesters were throwing chairs at him from the balcony. So the notion of what you could do in a theater was quite different then. Now we're polite. We might hiss if we hated something, although it's been a long time since I've heard that. And we tend to stand and cheer at the end of productions. But the Astor Place riot really put an end to large-scale violence within the theater in America. Theater was considered, as you say, its own world, a separate space. And it was brought into alignment with the larger political world and legal world after that. It would be remiss of me to end this podcast without mentioning The Tempest, which is also another of the plays that you use as sort of an inflection point. I mean, this is kind of claimed or has been claimed to be, you know, Shakespeare's only American play. Why was that? People have wanted to claim Shakespeare from America going back to the early 19th century. We can argue that you didn't appreciate him fully. We can argue that he speaks to us more clearly and directly. But in the early 20th century, his American play, The Tempest, was weaponized in disputes over immigration. And there was a, a long effort from the late 1890s until 1924, when those opposed to large-scale immigration from poorer Eastern European countries succeeded in creating racial laws excluding those immigrants. And that was not overturned until 1965 during the civil rights era. And the Tempest and especially Taliban became an emblem of that unwashed immigrant. And ironically, both those who hated immigrants as well as those who wanted to integrate them into American culture turned to Taliban as an example. And The Tempest is very different in the late 19th and early 20th century in Britain than he is in, in America, where that play and that character become an emblem of whether we are truly going to be an Anglo-Saxon nation or we're going to be a melting pot. And those battles obviously are still going on and issues of immigration are still highly contested in America and in many productions that I've been involved with, that is played out again and again. Yeah, it's interesting that I think Henry Cabot Lodge, you mentioned, also makes the argument, you know, kind of claiming Shakespeare for the Brits. Cabot Lodge, he's very anti-immigrant. He's a kind of, I mean, in some ways, some of what he writes reads like a sort of American Enoch Powell. You have him claiming Shakespeare for America by saying that actually the purer version of Shakespeare's language survives in the States. I love that. And there's a myth with no foundation to it at all that the pure Shakespearean Elizabethan English survives deep in the foothills of Appalachia. 
And we want to believe that we are more closely in touch with that Elizabethan era, as if it had gone to sleep, the language had gone to sleep for 400 years. And Large published an essay talking about Americanisms that make us closer to Shakespeare than late 19th or early 20th century British people were. It's part of our own little battle with you about who owns Shakespeare. And then within America, we have our own battles left and right. Once we've decided that Shakespeare is truly American, which side is winning in that tug of war? Yeah. I mean, coming closer to the present day, you mentioned some sort of extraordinary little kind of unlikely Shakespeareans. I mean, one of them being Steve Bannon, who adapts Coriolanus. And Bill Clinton, as, as well, features in the Shakespearean tradition. It's bizarre, but true, that Steve Bannon, the mind behind Trump in the 2016 election, his most capable advisor, first tried to adapt, I think it was a sci-fi version of Titus Andronicus, and then resituates in another screenplay that never got made by Hollywood, resituates Coriolanus as a story about black gangs in L.A. in 1992 during the Rodney King racial riots. And the takeaway from that misguided literary effort was that Shakespeare points the way to chaos and chaos is the way to political power. And that is another lesson that my country is struggling with right now. So I'm, I'm really, in the aftermath of 2016, struggling to understand my own nation, having spent most of my adult life studying what the weather was like on, on March 26th in London in 1599. Here I am trying to understand the play tectonics of American society. And Shakespeare has helped me do so. And I have to say the answers are a bit chilling. Well, let's hope Shakespeare provides a civilizing window into America of the future. But, well, good luck. James Shapiro, thank you very much indeed for your time. Sam, it's been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you very much for listening. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. And if you did, we very much hope that you'll subscribe on your podcast provider of choice and or rate and review us. Well, especially if you liked it. If you hated it, don't, don't feel you have to review it. And equally, if there's something that you wanted to ask us about something you think we could do better or something you enjoyed please do send us your feedback to podcast at spectator.co.uk thanks again for listening and please join us for our next episode <laughs>